I'm Anna Healy-Fenton and welcome to the sixth program in the series of Peaks and Troughs. This morning it's Hong Kong's dark underbelly. That's triad societies, terrorism and kidnappings, all that good stuff and plenty more. We've got Dave Hodgson, former Hong Kong policeman and high-profile Crown Prosecutor turned defence lawyer Kevin Egan, who in his time has handled several headline-grabbing high-profile triad cases. So, what's the story with triad societies in Hong Kong now? Well, triads have been a problem in Hong Kong right from the word go. Um, but they're, they're, they're not static. They keep changing. So when, when I describe triads, when I, I'm involved with the university and I give talks to the university, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm talking about triads, I talk about the clouds of crime. Because triads are a little bit like clouds. They keep changing shape and keep changing. There are different types of clouds, there are different types of triads. So I just think that's a very a descriptive way uh, of describing them. I would say, at street level, triads are gangs. They're invariably led by a charismatic leader, right. invariably male. Um, Always male? Not, no, I, I don't know of a female, but I, uh, there are female members of triad societies for sure, but not many. But then usually male. It, it, it's normally about geographical dominance of an area, control, protection, extortion, violence. But it's not all negative. I mean, apart from this, they do actually provide a service. Uh, and sometimes, you know, where there is a little bit of a vacuum, um, they, they, they will fill the vacuum. Um, but it's, it's, it's nothing terribly cerebral. When you say a service, what do you mean? Uh, you want to buy drugs at street level, you want to prostitute at street level, you want to park your car without it getting scratched at street level. They're the very simplistic things. I see, but there I are, see. There, there are other things. Uh, in the old days of squatter, uh, squatter hut areas, uh, they would arrange the electricity supply, the water supply, uh, and all sorts of other arrangements. Um, so they, they are providing services as well. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's about dominance, it's about fear, it's about violence, it's protection, extortion. So if you feel you need protection and you ain't getting it from the normal agencies, you might well go along uh, to try it. And is it money-based like the Mafia? It's money-based. I wouldn't say it's like the Mafia, but it's, of course it is. I mean, they're in it to make money. I mean, there is a little bit of fun joining a gang, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, uh, charisma, all the rest of it. But in other areas of activity, it's different. So when you get into, say, um, uh, trafficking, drug, trafficking in drugs, or, or whatever, there, there it's about there, there it's about being able to put a deal together. You need contacts. You need to be discreet. It's a, it's a, in, instead of being overt, it's very covert. So the, the whole skill set is different. You know, there might be times when you need some. Uh, some muscle along, and you'd go go rent the other lot. Right. Uh, and some people move from one area t- to another, you know, one area of activity to another. Um, but uh, uh, the skill set in uh, in international trafficking of one thing or another is, is very different. Right, right. So, Kevin, you've had quite a lot of exposure and experience to triads over the years. What are your uh, most um, poignant observations? When I first came here in uh, 1980, (coughs) prosecuting for the uh, Attorney General, there were in those days 
still quite a few triad-type crimes. There were people who were regularly charged with either being members of triad societies, professing or claiming to be members of triad societies. One celebrated case, I prosecuted the whole board of directors of the Sun Yeon Triad Society, and they were all office bearers. A list was uncovered in which each of them was listed in order of rank. Uh, their numbers were listed in this list. So when I first came here, triad activity was still formal and perhaps more traditional and was prosecuted quite frequently. And I did a lot of it. This but was when you were working for the government, the, the government as a prosecutor. As a prosecutor but in the now, 19, of course, 1980s. you're a defence lawyer. Well, now I'm a defence lawyer. But my impression is that uh, as time has marched on, uh, the, the formal aspects of, of triad membership and triad operations have fallen by the wayside. And as Dave says, these days they're really just members of gangs. They invoke these mystical triad concepts from the past sometimes to give themselves a bit of verisimilitude. But in actual fact, these days, there are no real traditional Hong League member triads anymore, I don't think. They're all, uh, they're all just gangsters that, that use the paraphernalia and the nomenclature and, uh, and operate in their own commercial best interests. Right. So looking back over the cases you prosecuted, what sort of crimes were the hallmarks of triads? Oh, basically it was uh, extortion-orientated blackmail, kidnapping that was related to perhaps gambling debts, it was the whole range of things. But money was the basis of it, or drugs, money or drugs. And is that still the case? Quite frankly, these days I don't encounter in the courts cases involving formal triad uh, institutions at all. It's ages since I've seen a case that's been triad-based or charges that are triad-based. These days, they just seem to have dropped all connection because my impression is that when 1997 came around, all the people that I knew because by this stage I was no longer prosecuting, I was now defending right. and defending some of them. By this stage, uh, 1997 came around, they all left. The people that I knew uh, moved to Zhuhai, and they're still in Zhuhai. Operating so, as triads there? Well, or? they're operating up there. I don't know what they're doing up there. I don't go to Zhuhai, they don't come down here, so I've lost all connection with them. But uh, that's where they moved to. And it seemed to me that Basically, the place cleared out. When 1997 came, for whatever reason, they all left. They all left town. That was Dave Hodgson and Kevin Egan. Kev would have us believe that the triads have packed up and left town. Well, Steve Vickers, former head of the Royal Hong Kong Police Criminal Intelligence Bureau, who now runs his own business, Steve Vickers Associates, as an expert in corporate and political risk. Steve has a very different view. I don't know whether Mr Egan's been living in Hong Kong or another town, but fundamentally, no, absolutely the opposite. Um, I've seen nothing 
but a very significant growth in triad activity uh, from the handover and beyond, i.e. from 1997 uh, up to today. They have made millions, maybe billions of US dollars um, from running junket operations between Hong Kong and Macau. They have certainly in the last 10 years ruined the the local film industry as a a result of extortion, uh, control and and, and, uh, monopolistic practices which they forced on the local um, movie industry. They continue to be very active and and, and with very little action taken against them. So, yeah, I fundamentally disagree, Uh, although I've always spent my life prosecuting them and I probably would spend very little time with them face-to-face. I can assure you that the triad activity has grown very substantially, not just within Hong Kong, but also between Hong Kong, Guangdong and, and further points north. And some major senior triad figures are reputed to be, or, or actually are, CPCC members, Chinese Communist Party Consultative Committee members, in addition to being uh, major triad figures. So the assertion that triads uh, aren't here, I have no idea where that comes from, but it's just fundamentally wrong. Okay. So where do you think um, Mr. Egan gets this idea from? Well, I, I have no idea what Mr. Egan thinks. Um, I just do this for a living. Uh, part of, I, I spent uh, 18 years, uh, I was head of the Intelligence Bureau before I retired, and since then I've spent a long time look, working for corporations, trying to eliminate triad influence from deals perhaps that they do to ensure that certain industries and um, sectors that people do need to deal in, that you, you don't end up uh, becoming engaged to or betrothed to or otherwise connected to to triad. So particularly anything in the inta- entertainment area in Hong Kong, big parts of construction, uh, large parts of uh, or, or part of the public light bus uh, infrastructure, uh, elements of the taxi service and certainly wet markets and fish markets all have direct triad control. Still? Still. Absolutely categorically? Absolutely, categorically. Okay. Now, you are acknowledged to be one of the world's experts on cleaning up and dealing with kidnaps. Tell us a bit about your time working on kidnaps in the police force and now, because you still specialise in that area. Uh, I don't like the word expert. I find that I have had experience in the field. I never meant it to happen. It just happened. Uh, in my service in the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, uh, I did 28 kidnappings. We recovered 26 alive. In the private sector, I deal with typically as a response consultant um, for uh, corporations that are insured. So typically I'd be working for the insurance company as the advisor or, 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 the, or the negotiator on a, um, on a given incident. Are there many kidnaps that happen but don't make the news? Lots. Um, in the Hong Kong slash China context, uh, it's, very, it's rather interesting. Uh, there are a lot of what I would call cross-border disputes or business disputes gone wrong, where someone gets grabbed because the people on the Chinese end don't feel they've got uh, sufficient legal leverage or other leverage, so they will grab someone and hold them in a, uh, in, a in an apartment house. Unfortunately, from time to time, there are. Um, local petty officials involved on the side of the um, on the side of the kidnappers and there are reputed rumors of increased cross-border activity where people are taken by boat out of Hong Kong and, and held against their uh, held against their will uh, the authorities are not keen to to broadcast that for a number of reasons one of which is 
Uh, they don't want to spread alarm amongst the public, which I think is a, a worthy um, a worthy thing. But I think it's also important that all kidnappings are reported, so that people know the so that the authorities know the scale of them and things can be done. The the business disputes gone wrong rarely end up with uh, with fatalities, uh, whereas the impromptu ugly kidnappings, i.e., people with poor planning, poor performance, perhaps take somebody, it doesn't go well, they panic and end up killing the uh, killing the victims. They're the tragic ones. They're the ones that I find more difficult to deal with. Um, I do deal with kidnappings from time to time. Uh, typically, if there's clear dialogue, um, if, I, if the kidnappers are communicating what they want in, mm. a, in, a, in an understandable fashion, we can normally deal with it and get the victim back alive. It's when we're dealing with babbling, incoherent um, communication that it becomes, it becomes far more difficult. Right, so are Hong Kong's tycoons walking the streets in fear of being kidnapped? I think that's an over, a bit of an overstatement. I mean, Hong Kong remains one of the safest cities uh, in the world. Uh, but we, we do need to keep our eye on the ball and make sure that uh, proactive policing continues to happen, uh, that kindergartens, for example, uh, give feedback to the police intelligence regularly uh, as to rumours they hear, that what's going on in the marketplace. Only then can you stay ahead of the game. Uh, reacting afterwards is desperately difficult. Kindergartens? I say kindergartens because a typical Hong Kong uh, money-based kidnapping would start with a child being normally a male child, uh, normally uh, outside the school or outside the home on the way to, to school or on the way back from the school, uh, snatched, uh, demands made to the family and very often resolved in a, in a relatively short period of time if the family pay the money. Where it can go wrong is if um, some, somebody intervenes, the kidnappers panic, and then they, they don't really have a, a, a secondary plan, and that's when fatalities can, can, can occur. That was Steve Vickers. And now, talking of fatalities, that brings us neatly to murders, and two or three in particular that caught the public imagination for their peculiarly Hong Kong style of gruesomeness. Author Dr Feng Chi Sum wrote a book called Hong Kong Noir, which features, as the title suggests, dark tales of Hong Kong's back streets, especially the rare, but when they do occur, sensational murder cases. Hong Kong has its share of uh, gruesome murders. Uh, the one that I also remember, but I didn't write in the book, I uh, didn't write a chapter on it, is uh, uh, someone murdered, the, an old lady murdered her husband and uh, turned his flesh into tarsil and sold, sold the tarsil as tarsil bows. Talk about destroying the evidence. You remember that one? I, I think. <laughs> when was that? Uh, oh, many years ago. Maybe about fifteen years ago. And how did she get caught? Well, um, people who do that kind of things are not always very smart, and they are just sloppy in every way. Um, so somebody found out about it. Dr. Fung continues to tell me about what was possibly Hong Kong's most famous murder case. The Western press call it the Jaws murder because he kept some of the body parts, uh, basically a breast from a young girl and the vagina of the same girl in, uh, in Jaws, uh, filled with chloroform, I mean formalin, filled with formalin. Um, the Chinese press call it the rain... Uh, rainy weather butcher because it's, it seems like he, he's a serial killer. He killed four young ladies. 
Mm. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, he was also very meticulous in cleaning after his act because he lived with a family. His family worked in the daytime. He he's a taxi driver working night shifts, so they have different sleeping hours. <coughs> so um, he, I, I still remember reading that he cut up the first his first murder victim by a chainsaw, which is which never works. I'm a pathologist, so I know this kind of thing. It's noisy and inefficient, I would say. Um, and it doesn't work very well with uh, flesh and ligament. It uh, works well with bones. Right. Uh, but if you use chainsaw on the uh, on the flesh and ligaments and soft tissues, so called, it, it will be splattered all over the place, Ugh, very horrible. far and wide. Uh, so he he <coughs> when he was caught months later, policeman was able to find little specks of of. Uh, Tissue, tissues, soft tissues uh, all over his room. Anyway. Uh, okay. And more recently, tell us what you, you thought about the, the guy that murdered his parents. Oh, okay. You have to be pretty sick to do that, isn't it? I mean... Just yeah. remind us of what the plot was there. Oh, I... I, uh, I think he uh, decided to kill his parents and then just lure them to an empty flat that he told his parents... Uh, to come and help him clean up because he's moving out of their family and then somehow kill them and chop them, chop the bodies up. Uh, I didn't go into details because I lost interest after a while. <laughs> mm. So what characterizes Hong Kong murders as distinct from murders in China or anywhere else? Uh, I think part of the reason why they chop up the bodies so frequently is because where they live is usually tiny. Mm. And uh, and. Hong Kong is such a busy and congested city. You cannot easily carry a body out and dispose of it easily. Unlike uh, in the U.S., for example, the serial murderers just simply bury the, the bodies in the backyard. Yes, or, they, when, or when, the basement. Yes. Yeah. When I watch Crime and Investigation Channel, they always seem to be in some leafy, deserted wood or yeah, somewhere like that. It's a lot easier mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, so they they cut up the body uh, for practical reasons. Easier to take, get rid of the body. Easier to you know it's hard to carry for one person to carry a body another body, but it's easier if you cut it into parts. It's not easy. Forensic scientist Dr. Sheila Hamilton vividly remembers being called to the scene of the Jars murder and gives an insight into the impact of these really horrible events on those that have to deal with them. The thing that I remember was that it was so very, very quiet. Normally, if you go to a crime scene where there are a lot of police officers around, there's some banter. It sounds unfortunate that somebody might be... Uh, appearing frivolous but sometimes that does happen but this particular crime scene it was so quiet nobody was saying anything was that because they were just so shocked i believe that that is is, is the case mm, so four dead ladies in in tupperware jars on the mantelpiece type of thing oh it wasn't in the mantelpiece it was outside on a on a ledge outside on a ledge uh, yes uh, but nonetheless, the fact that parts of an individual had been stored in a Tupperware, well, I don't know if it was Tupperware or some other brand, but <laughs> I remember afterwards 
being quite obviously quite upset and the fact that you're not able to discuss the matter with anybody I mean clearly I could discuss it with my colleagues when I, I went back to work but obviously there's no way in which you can talk to about a, a crime scene like that or any other crime scene uh, with anybody else that you shared your, your home with. Now, I, you know, I didn't have anybody other than a cat, so I, I wasn't able to, to do that. Um, but nonetheless, I, I did find that uh, it did put me off my sleep for quite some time. Dr Philip Bay is a forensic pathologist at Hong Kong University and he explains the impact of forensic science and DNA profiling on crime investigations these days. Increasingly, forensic science is um, important in giving the evidence. It may not necessarily solve cases, ultimately uh, police solve cases, uh, but I think we talked about forensic DNA or most people now know about forensic DNA and it has changed the whole uh, police investigation uh, techniques or mode because police now tend to wait for forensic scientists reports on the DNA uh, and then fine we've got the person and let's move in uh, in many ways it, it, it is useful it's uh, very, very powerful tool. But have they always got the right guy? Um, you will always get the right guy for the DNA result, but is it the guy who did the crime? That's another story. Yes. Now, do you think this is making the police maybe a bit lazy if they're just waiting for you? In many ways, uh, Hong Kong homicides, if you follow the numbers, are extremely low. Most Hong Kong homicides are domestic events where you know who is involved. Right. You just want the evidence to confirm it. Um, the days where we had all the trial homicides where multiple people are chopping multiple people, uh, in some sense, the, the DNA doesn't help you there. Uh, that's police intelligence on who's on which side of, of the fight. Right. So can you give us an example of a couple of cases where forensic science and DNA have been really key? Well, one very recent example was the one where uh, the young man decided to kill you know, his, his parents where the body of the parents were quite mutilated and I don't think traditional and anatomical means of identifying the remains would have worked you would definitely uh, need DNA testing to confirm that those bags of human remains belong to one person or the other. I see. And any other cases where forensic science, going back a bit maybe, was mm. key? Um, a lot of forensic science was key. For example, uh, I, mean, I think most readers or uh, most listeners will have heard about uh, the case involving uh, the death of an investment banker in Parkview. Uh, Robert Kissel. Robert Kissel's case. There you had issues about possible drugs in his system, uh, the way he was killed, uh, and whether that was uh, planned or otherwise. So several things come into mind. You have toxicology, mm. uh, and in that case, uh, toxicology in a body that was uh, several days old. 
so that that had it, its own difficulties. Mm, nasty. Uh, yeah. Uh, you also had uh, blood spatter patterns uh, as a result of the blows to uh, his body that killed him. Uh, and how uh, that was reconstructed as to where the blows were delivered, uh, how the blood flew, and where uh, those blood patterns were found on the furniture on the wall. So that helped uh, piece together you know, the the attack, as it were. Uh, how the attack is interpreted, obviously, prosecution had one story, defense had another story, and the jury had to decide who they believe. That was forensic pathologist Dr. Philip Bay. Finally, Steve Vickers, explaining more about the triads and whether or not we should be worried about a terrorist threat in Hong Kong now as a result of reported ISIS attempts to recruit Indonesian domestic helpers in recent weeks. Very simplistically, the British viewed, and I still do, the triad societies as a peril to um, stability. Um, the Chinese, however, the, the Chinese government often viewed them as potentially patriotic or useful tools of state policy. So where are we now with the with threats from triads? Are they more active here or in the mainland? Triads are very, very active, both here in Macau. As I said earlier, they've made a vast amount of money uh, out of the junkets, but they are often susceptible to control. Um, documents that you can prove in the open sector will, 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 will mention uh, their elements of them being used by Bureau 9 of state security. Uh, you can read it in the public. Bureau media. 9 in Beijing? Bureau 9 of the MSS. But uh, that's a, they would deny it, but that's a, it's been much reported in the, in the media. So I think the difference would be that they are seen by elements of the, of the government as being patriotic by the British establishment as the opposite. And remember, the, the triad societies, particularly the Sanyon, cooperated with the Japanese during the, um, the Japanese occupation, ran the rice trade uh, in particular, and cooperated with the Kempentai. Now, bringing it right up to date, recently we've read about alleged threats of ISIS in Hong Kong and recruiting Indonesian domestic helpers. Should we be worried about that? I'm not so sure that the media has uh, not got ahead of itself Clearly, ISIS is a threat, and people who have been overseas in Syria and, and elsewhere are being recirculated um, or recycled, if that's the word, through Asia. Um, I think we need to monitor the situation carefully and not, uh, you know, keep a close eye but not be too paranoid in Hong Kong. That was political and corporate risk expert Steve Vickers. It's good to hear that in spite of the Hong Kong government putting our terrorist threat assessment at moderate, that we really have nothing to worry about. Until, of course, we do. Next week, I'll be asking the question, is Hong Kong really the place to have a dog as a pet? Until then, have a great week. If it's causing a vampire man, sleep each morning till after ten, then the answer is yes, I want to be bad. This thing is being a good little goody is all very well. What can you do if you're lonely with plenty of If it's naughty to ask for more Let a lady confess I want to be 